0: It's not about, can we do it? It was more about how we do it. I always expected people to say no. And then when someone said yes, I was like, what? you <laughs> actually want to do this? I just had to keep putting one foot in front of the other. The whole world is like, what exactly have you smoked again? This is The Raise, where we take you behind the scenes into the capital-raising journeys of startup founders. Some you may have heard of, others you need to hear about, and all of whom have been through it to close a raise. On the show, you'll learn how founders make the difficult decisions. Whether you're a founder yourself or you're simply interested in the fast-moving, innovative world of startups, this show is for you. I'm your host, Mylin Dang. I'm Managing Director of capital-raising law firm Metis Law. For over a decade, I've worked with founders to raise capital so they can build businesses that make a lasting impact. Hello, founders and friends. Today, I'm chatting with Ben Burton, the CEO and co-founder of PropTech startup Rental Heroes. Rental Heroes is an AI-powered chatbot that communicates directly with tenants to help deal with tenant issues and requests. This gives the property manager their very own digital property assistant to help quickly and effectively resolve tenant issues. Imagine that, not having to email or talk directly to your property manager. Ben is an inventor at heart. After an illustrious career in corporate for almost two decades, Ben decided to use his skills and knowledge of AI to disrupt the property sector. In this episode, you'll hear how Ben and his co-founder, Don Chmielewski, leveraged their Accelerator Program connections to fill up their investor pipeline how they cold-outreached investors, and how finding a lead investor transformed their capital raising program. Let's dive in. Ben, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks very much, Mylene.
0: Firstly, congratulations on being a finalist in the Real Estate Business Awards, Innovator of the Year.
1: Thank you very much. Very perceptive of you. You saw us plaster that across all of our socials.
0: (laughs) Very exciting. It's a vote from me if I'm allowed to vote on that. (laughs) Ben, your company is Rental Heroes. Let's start from the top. What's your elevator pitch?
1: We play in the PropTech space, residential property management. Our product is an AI-powered chatbot that handles tenant requests and issues in a conversational way. And it is designed for property managers to reduce the phone calls and emails that they get from everyday tenant requests these are things ranging from how do i pay my rent when's my rent paid through to and also maintenance which is a common one so we go through all the common troubleshooting sequences to try and resolve it on the spot but if we can't we will automatically hook into our customers crm or workflow system and create that work order and landlord approval on their behalf so from a property manager's point of view it's a productivity tool these guys are just flat out 24-7. The AI picks up a lot of that workload. And from a tenant point of view, it's a real enhancement to the customer experience because a lot of the requests that they have or ask can get answered immediately on the spot, which is very different to traditional channels. So what's your
0: big audacious dream for Rental Heroes?
1: Look, like all founders, we're on the treadmill First the big dream was to get to seed round, now it's to get to series A <laughs> and our big focus of course is post seed is, is that series A milestone but ultimately we hope for an exit of course that realistically given the size of our market that's most likely to be a trade purchase as opposed to an IPO but who knows at the moment it's milestone by milestone we have big dreams as to where we'd like to take product and the markets that we play in but all we'll focus on the next funding round at this stage
0: Ben, at a young age, you say you loved to make inventions in the backyard. What sort of things did you make?
1: From a young age, I was that kid that would always be putting contraptions together, you know, whether it was bucket showers in the backyard or automated confetti throwing contraptions.
0: Oh, brilliant.
1: (laughs) I was always out in the backyard tying strings of tree branches and hanging things off them and making a big mess for my parents to clean up. (laughs) I've always been curious of things that you can make and outcomes that are very tangible.
0: From a professional perspective, you completed a double degree in commerce and law, like me, before spending 17 years working in corporate roles, including at Telstra, Brightstar, and Bupa. And the roles quite varied, ranging from marketing strategy to product design. How did this path through corporate then lead you to an interest in property and prop tech?
1: So I wouldn't say that I always wanted to be a founder or a co-founder in this situation from a young age. In fact, I actually went down the corporate path and thought that would be my career for life. I guess there's a couple of turning points that started to plant the seed, of doing something yourself. One of them was working for Brightstar, which is one of my corporate roles. And that company was founded by an impressive guy, Marcelo Clore, And whilst it was a very large US-based company, Even with thousands of staff, it felt like it was still a very entrepreneurial environment. There's a lot of flexibility around processes and all that sort of stuff. And I really enjoyed the vibe that that company bred as opposed to more corporate places like Telstra. But then I went on to Bupa, where I had a role heading up one of their innovation functions. A big part of that role was helping with the automation of call center inbound inquiries with a view to creating a better customer experience and productivity. and that gave me exposure to a wide range of technologies that were at that point, which was sort of 2018, 2019, really quite cutting edge, particularly conversational AI. And I really started to understand the power of this technology, which has been around for a while, but I feel as though had only really got to a point where it was commercially scalable in a way that didn't erode from the customer experience. In fact, it enhanced the customer experience. So all of this coupled together at Booper, I, I really enjoyed that job. I had a fantastic team that I worked with, but I was sort of right. I thought that the technology was just ripe for putting into other industries beyond health insurance and big corporations, banks and telcos, etc. And I still had that flair, I guess, from Brightstar that I would like to do something myself. That coupled with the fact that I have a long friendship with the other co-founder of Rental Heroes, Dominic Cimielski, who also is a very entrepreneurial guy. For many years, we've sat at the pub and thought of all these great ideas on problems we might solve. So the fact that all of these things had lined up led us to creating Rental Heroes as a side hustle initially.
0: And why property? Why using that technology in property?
1: Like most Australians, I've always had an interest in property. I sit on the couch scrolling through REA or Domain or whatever yep. for entertainment, as sad as that is. I have been a tenant on multiple occasions. I've been a landlord on multiple occasions. I felt as though just from an end user point of view, I had experience in the bottlenecks and that we were going to try and solve through Rental Heroes. Practical examples, property, dishwasher broken. It shouldn't take 10 days and four emails and two voicemails to get that sort of issue fixed. So it seemed to me that there was a real problem could be solved. It's painful for everyone, the tenant, the landlord, the property manager themselves, the trade. At that point in time, and still for some agencies, it wasn't solved. And there was technology out there that I was now quite familiar with that I knew with a bit of Dom's ingenuity could be applied to this use case. So we started uh, working on a project on weekends and evenings whilst we were both working. And that was the start of Rental Heroes. First year, Dom and I were working on it. It was very different to what Rental Heroes is now. We went about it the wrong way, to be honest, for that first year. In what way? We were over-engineering everything, so we were trying to build solutions to the problem that other people had already solved. We weren't going about it in what we now know is an MVP-first type approach we were, and perhaps this is due to our corporate background, we were trying to solve the whole lot in one piece. So we weren't getting very far. We were spending a lot of time and effort and we had pages and pages of IT documentation and putting some of our personal funds into it as well. And then we applied to an accelerator program. We felt like we were stuck in the mud a little bit and that was the Blue Chili Accelerator Program. They just happened to have a prop tech targeted accelerator program, a good friend of mine, Lucinda Gledo, flicked me the link and said, why don't you guys you know, apply for this? And I'm like, oh yeah, that looks pretty good. And yeah, we got through the filtering process. It's always very competitive. We didn't actually think we'd get in, but we got in. And that was the start, I guess, of Rental Heroes that the market sees today.
0: Aside from the accelerator, was there an inflection point in Rental Heroes, the product or the business that made you leave your corporate roles?
1: Both of us actually left our corporate roles at about the same time. The accelerator started in January of 2019, and both of us left our roles in April of 2019. It just started to become apparent that if we were going to get funded and get the market traction that we need to get funded, that we'd have to double down on our efforts. We did do initial customer research, and we felt as though there was a market for the product that we were starting to design. And both of us had an appetite to go to feet in on this. I mean, we were in an environment through the Blue Chili Accelerator program where there were a lot of prior founders and our peer group itself was highly ambitious. So I guess there was an energy that that culture brought to us, which was very different to sort of the year before where we were sitting around in Dom's front office working on it piece by piece. So there was that sort of energy and spirit and urgency. And We really felt like this was our shot. Financially, it's a very hard thing to do. So both of us were fortunate because we had worked in corporate for several years and we were positioned where we could roll the dice. Now, whilst I was sad to leave Booper because I really liked my job there, it was good fun, what were the projects that I was working on. I didn't see it as a huge risk at this stage of my career because I had 15 years corporate experience under my belt. So if it did fall over I didn't see that as the end of the world. Initially, it was almost like a test to see whether we could get this done. We'll give this a year. If we can make it work, great. And if not, we'll, we'll go back to corporate.
0: And how did you actually make that decision to leave? Did you consult certain family members? Did you consult advisors or was it just a discussion between you and Dom as co-founders?
1: All of the above probably, but the main influence on whether I actually did it or not, I wanted to do it, but whether I actually did it or not, was a discussion with my wife. It's more than anything a financial sacrifice or decision to build a startup. Of course, Dom and I wanted to do this. This is cool. This is fun. It's a lot more exciting than anything we've been able to achieve in corporate. You've got to be able to pay your bills and put food on the table. So that's what it came down to. Can we actually do this financially at this point in our life?
0: So you've mentioned... Dom Chimielewski, who's your co-founder, and you met Dom working at Brightstar?
1: That's right, yeah.
0: And what was the nature of your relationship? Were you working together or just knew each other through Brightstar?
1: We're actually in different departments. Dom has a technical background, so he was building e-commerce products and a few other things over the course of his career there. I was in more of a consulting capacity, so providing services you know, back to the telco industry, and that was a lot of number crunching type stuff. We would touch base on projects we worked in the same building, so we got to know each other as people that took their work seriously, did a good job, and that led us to, I guess, understand that we have complementary skill sets. You know, at the time we didn't realise that that would be useful down the track, but when you decide that you want to build a business for yourself and you've got ideas as to what problems technology could be used to solve, you sort of think through, who would I want to do this with? And you naturally start with your network and your friends and colleagues and... It felt like a natural fit for both of us. We found ourselves, as I I mentioned earlier, at the pub always thinking about how technology could be used to solve different problems. And that was something that we just did in a geeky sort of way for many years. So it was natural when both of us started to gravitate towards building a business that we would do it together.
0: And what does your relationship with Dom look like outside of work now that you're working together as co-founders and you're owning a business together? Has it
1: changed? Yeah, look, it's definitely changed. We're still friends along with professional co-founders, so we will still go for a beer. And unfortunately, a lot of that talk now is about rental heroes, but we (laughs) occasionally do show an interest in each other's lives outside of rental heroes. (laughs) It's a tough relationship. We've certainly had our ups and downs. It's similar to a relationship with your partner. You start to, over time, understand what makes them tick, what motivates them, where you need to just shut up because it's not going to be beneficial to the outcome, where you need to talk. You sort of go through that process with each other and there's teething issues but we've landed in a really good spot so the relationship's probably as, as strong as it's ever been. It's not easy being co-founders and working with that person day in day out and still maintaining a friendship but yeah I think we've done a pretty good job of it.
0: So you split up your role, your CEO and Dom is COO, how did you make that decision as to who would take which role?
1: We've sort of made that decision way back in 2018, before the Blue Chilli Accelerator program. What maybe led to the decision was that my experience in corporate was more on the leadership side of things. I manage big teams. That's what I did in my last couple of roles. And Dom's experience, whilst he managed teams as well, he also had very specific technical skills around product development and innovation. And so it seemed almost natural that Dom would be the chief product type role, and I would be the CEO slash CFO type role, but everyone does more than that. So Dom does operations and product and a bit of account management. And I do CFO and CEO and sales and marketing, but you can't be everything. A simple way to split it whilst where the size we are is sort of CEO and COO.
0: And have you written down what the demarcation between your roles looks like or is it just feeling your way through depending on capacity?
1: It's the latter, but we have written it down mainly because going through a capital raising round, people want to understand the swim lanes that the resources operate within. But I don't feel as though we ever needed to write it down. We're pretty clear on what each other's skill sets are. People only have so much capacity, right? So you basically do as much as you possibly can, and that's still not enough.
0: Do you think the understanding of each other's capacity has come from working together previously at Bright Star and knowing each other then, or has it been through the last couple of years working together in Rental Heroes?
1: Look, it's a bit of both, but yeah, 80% probably rental heroes. And it's more about understanding each other's capabilities, ability to prioritise, all that stuff. It's not so much capacity, like we have project tools that tell us what's burning hot, what's not. Everyone, and not just myself and Dom, but the wider team are very clear on what order things need to happen. But in terms of sort of where that work falls and who does it, yeah, it's just sort of evolved. I don't know whether that's the correct way or not, but that's how it's worked for us.
0: Yeah, that's great. I'd like to talk about your capital raising journey for Rental Heroes. You've raised a million dollars in seed investment in May 2021, and you had follow-on investment from some earlier investors as well as some new investors coming on board. Investable, which is a seed investment group in Australia, led the round. Can you talk through how you came to have Investable become the lead investor?
1: I guess as a lot of founders would say, it was a high level first, it was later than we wanted it to be. In terms of our journey, when we raised, it was harder than we wanted it to be. It took longer than we wanted it. But look, on Investable specifically, we met Investable approximately a year earlier before they indicated that they would be lead investors for us. That was through. The program that they run called the Investable Games. So basically, it's a screening program where they try to understand the fundamentals of startups and get to know them. So it was like a two-day intensive program. We still don't know to this day exactly how we got into that screening program.
0: Do you mean you didn't apply for it?
1: No, we didn't apply for it. They reached out to us and it's just through the startup community, right? I think through the Blue Chilli program, Blue Chili, very good at marketing. So I guess our name might've been out there if you're Googling sort of prop tech startups. We did that program and we just kept in touch. So they didn't say that they didn't want to invest at that point. We were too early, but we gave them business updates every sort of few months. And then when we decided that we were ready to start raising capital We obviously approached those guys. And the drill is we approach, you may or may not get invited. Normally, there's a pitch with a senior analyst. If you're lucky, then they might allow you to pitch to the investment committee or make a decision as to whether they're going to invest or not. So it's quite a long process. We found out just before Christmas last year that they would be our investor and our lead investor, which was fantastic.
0: So they stepped up to the role. They suggested being lead investor.
1: No, we asked, and this is quite common, right? And perhaps if I just step it back a little bit, deciding when to raise is a whole topic within itself, so I won't go into that. But when you've decided that you'd like to raise, you're going to go out to different groups of investors. There's people that you've built relationships with for some time, and you obviously go after those guys first and try to create a space to pitch your, your pitch deck. And you're also going to go out after cold investors that you may not have met before. So I think you need to do both. And we certainly did both. We literally had a list, you know, the way you build that list, there's an open source table on Airtree. Befriend every VC you, you can find on LinkedIn. You'll see comments from other VCs. Very quickly, you'll be able to identify who are the early stage investors, whether they're family officers, VCs, or individuals. You just need to get into their LinkedIn community, and then you'll see them posting on each other's pages. We basically did that. We cold outreaches, warm outreaches, the whole works, and you start to get your calendar filled with pitch meetings. You get a lot of rejections straight off. They won't even want to hear your pitch and that's fine. But, you know, it is a numbers game. So we tried to get as many meetings into the calendar as possible. There lies the next challenge. So all of the investors that you're pitching to are going to ask who else is investing. And that's tough. Getting your first couple of investors or a lead, ideally, is really tough. In hindsight like our lead came too late in the process so we started pitching in sort of october time frame maybe late october and then investor will confirm themselves as that they'd like to be a lead just before christmas as i mentioned if that had happened earlier in early november we could have closed out our round a lot quicker simply because of that question that always gets asked like who is your lead investor if you don't have a lead investor who else is investing What I came to understand the logic behind that, because that was very, very frustrating at the time. It's like, from a founder point of view, it's like, oh, for goodness sake, you all seem to have an interest in this prospectus, this pitch, but someone's going to have to jump. If you all keep asking that same question, we're going to run out of runway, and no one's going to have the opportunity to invest and help us grow, and, and everyone benefits. So once Investable finally came on board, and we were very fortunate that they did. changed the dynamic a lot we were able to close out the round relatively quickly thereafter i often wonder this but i don't know if there is a solution for it in hindsight i feel as though some of the pictures that we did earlier where we were rejected i feel like that would have gone a lot differently if we had a lead investor on board at that time so we almost chewed through opportunities because of not having a lead up front. It's very hard to get a lead, but yeah, look, if you're a startup that's looking to raise a round, if you've been nurturing relationships for some time and those relationships have indicated that they can be your lead investor, try to lock them down, see if you can negotiate a sensible term sheet as soon as possible, because going out into your wider round with that lead investor locked away is going to make life a lot easier and it's gonna speed up the whole process.
0: Do you think there was anything you could have done to have Investable come on sooner as a lead investor? Or was it just the timing of when you met them that led to it being a bit later in
1: the piece? Look, it's hard to say. We possibly could have approached them earlier, but then we wouldn't have had the traction or the metrics that would have interested them. It's really tough, right? You are literally between a rock and a hard place. You're trying to leave it as long as you possibly can because you want to get as much traction as you can. But then, especially for those leads, you want to sort of get in early too. So it's finding that balance.
0: One of your other new investors that came on board was Morton Burke Belling, the Managing Director of MenuLog ANZ. How did you come to meet Morton?
1: So that was actually through the Startup Network. Blue Chili introduced us to Morton. Spent some time with Morton, obviously going through due diligence and presenting the business. Morton, I think, was interested in our business due to the B2B software space. You know, his business is a little bit different. He has menu log. you sort of got the consumer users, but then you've also got the restaurants. But from a market dynamic point of view and the software itself, Morton felt as though he could help us from an advisory point of view, and he has certainly been very helpful as we've navigated post seed growth. and the motivation for him wasn't just I don't think putting Be into a business and walking away. He's a very entrepreneurial guy himself, he wanted to get involved and help out where he could, which was great.
0: Ben, what was the most difficult question that you received from a prospective investor?
1: So you do start to understand the questions that are going to come up after the first few pictures, And for us, because it was all through COVID on a Zoom, it goes very quickly. Like they can be quite high pressure meetings. And so you can lose track of the questions that are coming through because they will happen in a conversational way. So it is important if you're a co-founder team, for example, that the person that's not talking is really noting what are they saying so that you can do a bit of a post mortem on it afterwards and you'll find that they sort of group into different buckets and For us, one of the buckets that was more tricky was around the market size that we play within. There is an appetite for venture to go after B2B businesses. One of the challenges with B2B businesses is the markets that you play within are a little bit more niche than if you're a consumer type business. We really needed to articulate very clearly what the market size is within Australia, but then also globally. And then we also needed to articulate very clearly that this is the revenue with our current product set, but through our product roadmap that we described to you earlier, this is how we're going to open up new channels of growth. You can't win all investors. The reality is that for a lot of investors that we pitched to, the market was just too small.
0: What was the most surprising thing about the cap raising process for you?
1: A really practical thing, actually. When we would pitch, as I mentioned, generally you would have a pitch discussion with a more junior member of the VC team. And their recommendation would then go to the investment committee. More often than not, for everyone, that recommendation is going to end in a no. So it felt to us, and not with Investable, by the way, that their process was actually quite different. But it felt like to us that there was a bit of a black box. That's really important part of the workflow of getting funded. And most VCs are pretty good and they'll provide you feedback. And for us, it was around the market size. And maybe for other startups, it's different stuff. Truly sort of understanding what discussion took place between the screener and the investment committee. That was always a mystery.
0: Were they giving you bland answers or no answers at all?
1: Most of the VCs that we pitched with are very welcoming. They provided feedback when asked For all I know, the feedback that they provided might have been a bit bland, but it was sort of the feedback that came out of the investor committee. But I just would have loved, and it'll never happen, of course, but you'd just love to sort of be a fly on the wall and really understand what the objections are. Is it you as a founder and the way you've come across? Or is it the product or like what specifically is it that's driving to that no? The feedback is, I wouldn't say it's bland, I'd say it's high level. Be great to be able to get that really detailed, the minutes or the discussion notes. But unfortunately for us founders, that will probably never happen.
0: Ben, what's one thing you can share with other founders who are thinking about raising capital or are embarking on the capital raising journey?
1: Apart from what I've already sort of gone through in terms of working out the balance of timing, the way you should source your leads, I mean, a lot of investors will say they like warm introductions. So obviously do that wherever you can, but don't panic. we got a lot of pitch invitations through cold outreach. It happens. There's nothing to be ashamed of. Like hit people up on LinkedIn, use your 300 characters wisely, see if you can get them to respond, send them an email, put a little teaser deck in. I think cast the net wide. Try to get your lead investor as early as you can.
0: And before we go, we're going to do what I call the quick six, six rapid fire questions. Okay. So you don't need to think too much about (laughs) it. (laughs) Don't worry, it's not scary. What's your favourite work from home, lunch or snack?
1: It's not my favourite, but it's the usual, which is just a toasted sandwich, (laughs) ham, cheese and tomato.
0: What's a great book that you've read recently?
1: Sadly, I haven't read a book for a long time. I'm mostly absorbed in articles and podcasts at the moment, so I wouldn't give you a good reference.
0: That's all right. On that point, what's a documentary or podcast that you've watched or listened to recently that you would recommend?
1: I spend a lot of time in PropTech, of course, listening to Kylie Davies' podcast series, which basically interviews other leaders or founders of property companies that provide software. So that's one of the key ways I understand the market that we're competing within.
0: What's the most useful good or service that you've purchased in the last 12 months that costs $100 or less?
1: I'm hopeless at these (laughs) rapid fire questions, LinkedIn premium, because we've had a lot of trouble, like most businesses hiring staff at the moment. And that provides me an avenue to reach out to people.
0: What's on heavy rotation on your music playlist right now?
1: I must be the most boring person in the world. I drop my son off at childcare in the morning and I listen to ABC radio (laughs) because the drive's only about five minutes. then you're not alone.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I love ABC Radio too. If money and time were no object, what would you be doing tomorrow?
1: I'd love to just spend some time with my family, probably at a beach or a park, good picnic.
0: Beautiful. Ben, I've really enjoyed talking to you today. We'll have all the links to your contact details and those rental heroes in our show notes. Thank you so much for sharing your story with me today. I'm very grateful for you.
1: Thanks, Mylene. I appreciate the chat.
0: You've been listening to The Raise, a show that takes you behind the scenes into founder stories about capital raising. This podcast is brought to you by Termsheet Guru, a product from the expert team at Metis Law. Create kick-ass capital raising term sheets with Termsheet Guru and learn how to negotiate term sheets with confidence. To find out more, head to the website termsheet.guru. That's T-E-R-M-S-H-E-E-T dot G-U-R-U. To make sure you don't miss an episode of The Raise, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Mylin Dang, and we'll be back next episode with another deep dive into a founder's capital raising story.